Hi, my name is Mary Eisen. I'm open up my passport and it's going to say Miriam. And I arrived, I never changed it, okay? I arrived in Israel. Um, I'd finished third grade in the United States. I came here in fourth grade. Um, overall, when you look at Israel as an immigrant nation, um, North American Jews don't immigrate. They're the smallest contingency um, from the establishment of the State of Israel, around 150,000, which is very little compared to the amount of Jews there are there. Um, and my, Jew my parents chose to move here um, in the wave that was after the Six-Day War. And we live here in Tel Aviv, and I arrive into fourth grade, and in the classroom, I walk in, I don't know any Hebrew, and I walk in and I say, in what little Hebrew I had, hi, my name is Miriam, and in Hebrew, Miriam, okay? And I said it like that, Miriam. And if I had said it, Miriam, which is the Hebrew way to say it, I said, Miriam, because that was the way I'm, Miriam, Miriam. And the teacher looked at me in fourth grade and said in Hebrew, now you are not in the exile anymore. Now you are in Israel. So your name is not Miriam, that's an exile name. Your name is Miri. You'll find in Israel in general that there are a lot of nicknames. I would say that every single person listening to us right now knows the nickname of the Israeli Prime Minister and might not even know his real name. You're listening to Is That Really? Stories and conversations about what it means to be Israeli. Really. I'm Grant. And I'm Andrew. And today on the podcast, Miri Eisen. Miri began her career in the IDF as part of the Israeli intelligence community. For over 20 years, she has served as the head of combat intelligence and the assistant to the director of military intelligence. After retiring from the military, Miri was appointed as the Israeli prime minister's international advisor and played an important role in the Annapolis conference. Currently, Miri is one of Israel's main presenters that sheds light on regional geopolitics, security-related issues in the global media, and the different narratives within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Andrew, what are some things that our listeners should keep in mind? Grant and I do not endorse the opinions of anyone that we are interviewing. Each opinion is that of the speaker, but we encourage you to be open-minded. Also, listeners should note that these first few conversations will be more academic and high-level, filled with a lot of information. So it's important to pay close attention, as we think it's super important to have this information in context before we dive into the stories that we'll be telling in later episodes. So um, without further ado, I'd like to present Miri Eisen, and thank you all for listening. We hope that you'll stay with us through this journey. We had a blast, and we, uh, we hope you will too. So Zionism, or the idea of self-determination in the historic land is an idea that mainly started in what I'm going to call Ashkenazi Eastern Europe Judaism. Didn't only start there, but it had a very strong pull there. And sadly, in its own way, it came out of that very negative aspect of anti-Semitism. So Jews in Eastern Europe, and I'm talking big numbers, mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century had options that we look at in a different way today. Most of them tried to immigrate to, the, to North America. They're now in the United States and Canada. And that's why the two enormous, large millions of Jews in the world live in North America and in Israel. And the second place was to Palestine. When we're talking end of the 19th century, it's under the Ottoman Turks. When we're talking after World War I, it's under the British, um, the United Kingdom. 
And at the end of the British rule, the British looked around and said, we're not really sure what to do here. And such had arrived both to the United Nations and to the modern state of Israel. So why did I go off to that and how does it bring me back in? Because Jews worldwide didn't always know how to handle this idea of a Jewish state. You know what? I'll take it a step further. Jews worldwide and Israelis still don't necessarily know how to handle this thing called Israel, the Jewish state. It's made up out of all kinds of Jews from all over the world. So that's Ashkenazi and Sephardic. Within the terms, there are additional ones. Is it Eastern European Ashkenazi? That's one way. There are other ways of looking at it, because certainly the Germanic is also Ashkenazi, and I would never call that Eastern European. When we say Sephardic, are we talking about Spain? Because Jews in Spain, even Jews in Holland, were from the Sephardic background. Or are we talking about a term which we use in Israel, Mizrahi, which comes from the Hebrew Eastern? You would call it Oriental. Here we are in 2019. Boy, do we know how wrong that word is nowadays. So sometimes you'll watch old movie reels that'll show Oriental Jews. No, they're not from Asia, and I'm not sure that that term is something that should be used at all. Um, they were the Jews who were coming from the Arabic speaking, from the Orient, but from the Middle Orient. So what established in 1948 was overwhelmingly by that Ashkenazi, and I'll even take it a step further, quite socialist Jews of Eastern Europe. Those were the bulk that came and established here the capabilities that made the possibility at all for a state to be established. Once the state was established, Jews start to pour in. Now, it again is not necessarily a happy story. It isn't the North American Jewish community who's immigrating to Israel. The Jews who are coming here are certainly the remnants after the Holocaust. That's one portion. That's actually a very small portion. How many were left? It's much more the systematic kicking out of what I called the Mizrahi Jews or the Middle Eastern Jews from all of the Middle Eastern countries from the establishment of the State of Israel, the first in that sense as a group. And I'm talking about tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands at the end. It's going to come together to millions of people. All of the Jews of Yemen, and then all of the Jews of Iraq, and then all of the Jews of Egypt, and then cut across systematically all of Northern Africa, the Jews of Libya, the Jews of Tunis, the Jews of Algeria. The largest of all of those were the Jews of Morocco. And it didn't all happen 1948 overnight, but it happened systematically from 1948 and on. So in Israel, basic distinction within Judaism is where you came from. We actually came here from over 100 different countries. It's not just the countries. It's a hundred different languages. It's a hundred different subcultures within their Judaism. Overwhelmingly Sephardic or Ashkenazi. But I want to give you two groups who are neither Sephardic nor Ashkenazi and they're heard of more. One is the Yemenite Jews who have their own version of prayer for Judaism, who were a very homogeneous group of Jews in Yemen who lived there literally from our point of view for the last 2,500 years, and they were all kicked out on bulk in 1948, and they live in Israel. There are very few Yemenite Jews anywhere else in the world. What do you call the Ethiopian Jews who pray in Amharit? Again, it's the different languages around. Everybody prays in Hebrew, but their language is also in Amharit, who developed their own beautiful Jewish tradition, who lived in Ethiopia until 
because of everything that went on in Ethiopia. They were systematically brought to Israel after the state was established um, in the 1980s and 1990s, and what that is inside Israel now. So this is just four different groups. In Israel, for Jews, we have mixed marriages between Jews and non-Jews. It, it certainly exists. Inside the Jewish community, it's 75% of the population. We joke that a mixed marriage is somebody who comes from a Romanian background marrying somebody who comes from an Iraqi background, somebody who comes from a Yemenite background coming from somebody who comes from a German background. It's different food. It's a different subculture. I think the, the best part of it is the way it comes out in food in Israel. Our food is stupendous. And in its own way, it's because it really is fusion of so many different cultures. All of it connected because at the end, that Jewish background, that Jewish heritage is the same for all. We all read the same Seder book. We all read the same books of the Bible. The basic prayer, even for the Yemenites, the Ethiopians, and other groups that are kind of subgroups, all pray the same. And then it makes it worse. Inside Israel, 80% of the Jews are totally secular. They're non-practicing Jews. Synagogue that they're not going to is actually not a progressive one. It's a very orthodox one, quite strict, but that's where they choose not to go to. So what we get here inside is an immigrant country, very similar to North American countries, to the United States or to Canada, made up out of lots and lots of diverse subcultures that have something that ties them together, but everybody brings in also their new aspect to the table. So we're way more diverse than most people think, we're very different from the North American Jewish community. Similar in numbers, we're a bit more, but not by much. We're probably six and a bit million Jews, and there are five and a bit million Jews in North America. But overwhelmingly, North America is Ashkenazi Jews who immigrated from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And in Israel, it's probably 60-40 Mizrahi, or what I call that Middle Eastern Sephardic and Yemenite and Ethiopian Jews and around 40% Jews that came. Again, I wouldn't call them the East European Ashkenazis, but from that Ashkenazi background. That's a lot. Um, um, and I, that's I, not even mentioning the million plus Russian Jews that came. So the million plus Russian Jews came after um, 70 years of communism. Communism outlawed religion in general. The religion was communism and not other religions. So it both outlawed the Orthodox Russian church, but it also outlawed Judaism. To make it worse also, the Soviets in that sense, in that Soviet version of communism, not only outlawed religion and Judaism, but from the mid-60s, and especially after the 1967 Six-Day War, in which Soviet weaponry and Soviet knowledge lost, and not just the Syrians, the Jordanians, and the, and the Egyptians, the Soviets turned Zionism into an incredibly horrific, um, negative um, propaganda machine that was like the worst thing that you could say. Mm. And that we're seeing in different versions today coming out all over the place. This is super interesting, Grant. I'm, I'm wondering, is there a common idea of what Israeli identity is, given the diversity of different waves of immigration throughout, uh, throughout time? I think uh, I could answer that, but it's best to go back to Mary. Yeah, I think that we're all multiple identities. Um, and one of them is an Israeli one. Because the Israeli one is going to be the convergence point. It's going to be the language, because the Israeli language is Hebrew. 
So I'm Israeli, and I'm absolutely Hebrew-speaking, and you can hear that I have a nice North American American accent in my English. My California. California. I was born. My parents moved here 48 years ago. Um, my husband, born, okay, he's through and through Israeli. And th just think of our two families as they combine. Um, my family are those Eastern European Jews who the smart ones who went to North America because that's where the streets were paved with gold. And my husband's grandparents, I mean his great-grandparents and my great-grandparents, his great-grandparents are those crazy brother and sister who at the beginning of the 20th century, who would have thought of it, came to that place called Palestine. Um, and in those first immigration waves that came here to Palestine, not that it was big numbers, many of them left. It was really hard here mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. And I'll even add, it still is harder to live here than it is in other OECD developed countries. It's more intense, cost of living is higher, things happen here very nearby all the time. It's mm -hmm. a tenser kind of thing. Um, we run at our own pace. We're very fast paced. It's not laid back. You don't come to Israel to be laid back, usually, even though we have great beaches. Um, but if I go back to those personal kind of stories, I think that we're absolutely seeing the convergence in schools, because schools are an equalizer. You see them in the military for the Jews, because the non-Jews in Israel, um, a large portion of them are not drafted, but everybody else is. All the Jews are, and that means that you're going to meet it there. And so the language is the one thing. The education system is going to be another connector. The um, military is going to be a third one where that's part of who you are as an Israeli. In its own way, though, what that does is it makes an Israeli different from everybody else in the world. Because you don't have the draft anywhere else in the modern democratic world. So it immediately puts like a wall between us and everybody else because we have this common denominator, mm -hmm. but we can't talk about it and compare it to anybody else because when people compare the military, they're immediately thinking of their own. And in the United States, it's volunteer. And who volunteers? And think right now on campus, who are the people who do go to ROTC and who do not? And you like look at them, and it's not about good or bad. It's about different portions of society. In Israel, it's everybody. So that also becomes an equalizer kind of thing, common denominator. Um, and I think also we've, we've reached the maturity of the stage in that third, actually heading in some cases into fourth generation, because it's pre-state and state, where we're all interested in the different cultures. So those subcultures of the 100 different places that the Jews came and then met here, the kids marry each other, everybody marries everybody. Okay, That's, that used to be a big thing, it isn't anymore. Um, but when you get to that stage of uh, the food, the background, and the dialogue, and you can see it's differences that are similar to generational gaps more than the culture that's here. Miri's notion of a common Israeli identity is, is really, really interesting to me. I know that like, a major part grant of how, and this is kind of unfortunate, but a major, major way that Jews in America unite is this idea of anti-Semitism, um, bringing right, this common experience that brings us together. Um, but I wonder what that looks like in Israel in a place with a Jewish majority. Did, did Mary happen to mention anything about that? Yeah, I actually asked her about it. It's a fascinating issue, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm looking at you, and I'm going to describe this, okay? We never called it anti-Semitism. When I meet people nowadays who come to me and say, oh my God, I go to Germany and I can't wear a kippah. Mm. 
which is horrific, by the way. That's the head covering that Jews wear. Or then they say, actually, in the United States, I'm wearing. And I'm like, in the United States, you can't wear a Jewish head covering? The people will actually say things or dress as a Jew? Israelis, for the last 70 years, certainly for the last 50 years, before they leave, they know you never wear a kippah outside. But we never call that anti-Semitism. We call that terrorism and being safe. Because we knew, in our sense, that we're a target. Horrific terrorism against Israeli targets from the mid-1960s and onward. PLO, in its terror stage, was established in 1964, hijacking planes, attacking anything with Jewish symbols. Jewish symbols, not Israeli symbols. Most people don't understand the nuance and the difference in that. But as Israelis, it was you're flying El Al because you feel safer, but El Al is also the target because it's the Israeli airline. Um, you're going to, but you never wear clothes that have anything in Hebrew on them. You would never wear a Star of David. It's like things that Israelis know. But we never called it anti-Semitism. Nowadays, in the complex world of anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, anti-Semitism, three different terms, that we could sit and have a discussion, a nuanced discussion, about the distinctions between those terms, but most people don't have nuanced discussions on most things, so that those terms all coalesce together. And if you're anti, if you're pro-Israel, that means that you're all, all the different aspects of how that ties in together. So um, sadly, we've kind of learned that there, it is, it's a kind of anti-Semitism. For example, the fact that Jews should not be allowed self-determination. That doesn't mean that other people shouldn't also have self-determination, that Arab Palestinians should not have Palestine. But the Jews should not have self-determination. Why only Jews? Everybody else can have self-determination. So that's a different aspect that we're seeing today at the end. Um, there's an aspect of anti-Semitism to that that we would never have connected that before. Um, so it's interesting how different it is from the outside in. Um, there's lots of hatred of Jews, but in, in inside Israel, in that Jew against Jew, that's, you know, that's it's called population and societies, okay? Mm -hmm. There's these kind of Jews and those kind of Jews, but the, we would never think of terming that as anti-Semitism. This is super fascinating, Grant, that anti-Semitism, which is um, unfortunately part of many, many Jews' experience around the world, um, is seen so drastically differently um, between the American Jews and Israeli Jews. And it, it makes me think of what are the limitations of our language, or the words that we use to describe experiences that we imagine that we have in common, but uh, we clearly don't. Well, the first limitation that I would say is that there is no neutral language to talk about Israel. The term that you use already puts you into some kind of political outlet, and I don't want to be about a political outlook. When it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict specifically, which is the main way that people look at Israel through, the terminology that you use isn't neutral. Do I say West Bank? That puts me in a political camp. Do I say Judea and Samaria? That puts me in a different political camp. Do I say occupied territories? Those are just three different terms for the exact same area. Let me give you some more. 
the Palestinian Authority, areas A, B, and C. I'm still talking about the West Bank slash Judea and Samaria slash occupied territories, but the term that I use already puts me, at least when I'm talking about this, somebody thinks that I have a political affiliation. And that is an enormous gap in not having neutral language. Second aspect I would put into there is that we're not always using the terminology. I'll say this otherwise. Second aspect to me is that when we use the terms, we don't always understand how they're heard by the listener. If I say West Bank to a group of people who are quite right-wing in their opinions, and I didn't mean anything. All I wanted to do was describe an area. What that triggers is an offside conversation where the words become the center instead of talking about the issues themselves. How do we define it? For most Israelis, the term Palestine mm -hmm. is not used. We use Palestinian. But we in Israel feel that what's happened over the last 50 years is that those who use the word Palestine, it's instead of Israel. I think that what we're not realizing is the flip side of that. When we say Israel, we just mean Israel. But what most people are hearing is Israel in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So we don't understand the meaning of the words that we're using at all. Wow, that was super powerful, Grant, that, that we don't know the implications of the words that we use at all. And that rings really true to me. And I could, I could think of some experiences in my life where um, I intended to mean something, but the, the implications and the impact were, were so different from my intent. Um, I wonder if Miri left you with any, any, any stories to help understand what that might look like in the context of Israel. Absolutely. Towards the end of our interview, I asked Mary about what were some defining moments in her life, and she told me the following story. I was very unique in my entire military career. All of the positions I did had never been done before by women, every single one of them without exception. And there were very few women who were drafted into military intelligence, and I was drafted in. There were even less out of those who got to go to officer's course, and I was sent to officer's course. So that every single position that I went to as an officer, as I went up in the ranks, there'd never been women. And I think that to me, one of the most significant aspects for me as an Israeli and as, a, and as an officer and as a mother and as a woman was arriving at that understanding that you can't do everything. And it has nothing to do with being Israeli, but it actually is also, we're a country, we do everything. It's like you, you become these kind of people. We do way more than most people. That's one of the reasons that we're kind of successful on things, but it's because we go at a really fast pace. And when I was pregnant with child number one, who is your age, he's 20, and there was this question, okay, what are you gonna do with a child? And I was like, you know, same old, same old. And I think that it was at that stage of realization from child number one to child number two that you can look at the world in a new way. And I think from that stage, I also started to look at Israel in new ways. I don't have to stay with where I was. I had an aim, and that's where I'm going. Um, and that's when I think... If, if I heard Yossi Klein Alevi talk about his 1989 moment and what that did in his interfaith aspect, for me that was the stage where I was like, wait, if I can look at different ways in my own life, then let me start looking at 
the multiple narratives, at the different ways that people look at us. Um, maybe there isn't a right way and a wrong way. Maybe there are lots of right ways. <gasps> what a thought, especially to people under the age of 25, okay? Um, and I think of that as a very important moment. To me, it happened with parenthood and balancing career and life, but the way that it came out was in the way that I look, talk, and address. Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, peoplehood on the one hand, together with my being in my background, I look at a very real politic security viewpoint, but I see people. Um, and I think today that there's a generation younger than me, again, your age, like my kids, um, who don't necessarily have any idea what I'm just talking about, because there's an absolute truth. Um, it's that multiple identity, multiple truths. I can be more than just one thing. And, and I think to me that's a really important aspect in life. Um, and I'm glad that it happened to me here in Israel. I love living here. I live in a country that has meaning. Not just for me, for many people and in many different ways. But it means that when you get up, you get up with a certain passion here it's incredibly tiring, really, it's incredibly tiring, but it gives us a chance to make a little impact. Um, our life is not just about who I did for me. Um, it's a little bit about how I do for the other, <sighs> defining that who is that other, expanding the idea of who is the other, talking about your own identities, and so, um, thrilled that I get that chance to meet so many different people. And I want to hope that as we look forward, this specific time period in history will be a little bit of ripples of water and we're going to keep on going on that trajectory of better societies. But I don't get it defined by myself what that is. That's a group thought. And it isn't I'm right and they're wrong. Maybe we're all right and then what do you do? Because, by the way, that gives an advantage to those who, who think that they're right and everybody else is wrong. They as if had an advantage, but you have to think how you address that. That's my final thought. You've been listening to Is That Really? I don't know about you, Andrew, but I think that was our best episode yet. Grant, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, the Duke Center for Jewish Studies and the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University for helping make our podcast Is That Really Possible? And to you for listening and hanging out with us. If you've been enjoying the podcast or just want to make our mothers happy, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out our website, www.isthatreally.com and tell your friends. We hope that you'll join us for the next episode. Thanks for listening. And now for a final question. If you were a vegetable, what would you be and why? I've never been asked that question before. I've never been asked that question before. I'm thinking about it for a moment because I'm going through vegetables. Mm. My comfortable me says a potato because they're comfortable. They're kind of comfort food, but I'm not a potato. Mm. Um, I'm a butternut squash. I have wow. a lot of color. Bright. Uh, I like that, that sense. Um, it's a hard outside. It's not soft inside, but when you cook it, it's just so sweet and good. Um, 
butternut squash because it's seasonal, so it comes and goes. 